This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We don't have enough words to understand the complexity of love because we're trying to lump together a broad range of experiences and just put them under one category, one umbrella term, love, and it's not enough. I mean, in Turkish, we have two different words, sevgi and aşk. Sevgi is more like, you know, the kind of love that you might feel for your fellow countrymen or countrywomen or for your family, for your friends. Maybe it's a calmer form of love. Aşk is a little bit more passionate, you know, like falling in love type of love. But even that is not enough. Two words is not enough. Think about it. Today, in our modern societies, we have more words to describe coffee than we have to describe love. We, we, we mention, you know, we say cappuccino, we say flat white, we say latte. We, we describe coffee in such detail. But when it comes to something as crucial, as fundamental and as universal as love, suddenly we don't have enough words. It might be helpful, actually, to look at the ancient Greeks. I love thinking about ancient Greek philosophy and society and, and, and writing as well. The ancient Greeks had at least six different words to describe love. So let's talk about love. I mean, everybody knows what love is about, right? What is there to talk about? After all, all these movies and songs and so many books, they're all about love. But I think it's important to take a closer look at the word, not only at the etymology of the word, but also at how we tend to use the word in our societies today. Um, when I look at the linguistic journey of the term, it has this Indo-European root, and it could mean either to care or to desire. And that in itself is interesting. In the Middle East, we have this word mejnun. We talk about feeling like mejnun or acting like, behaving like mejnun. And basically it means someone who, ha who is so much in love, so deeply in love, that they have lost their mind, that they've gone crazy, you know, that, that they can't think rationally anymore. And we have the story of Leila and mejnun. But is that the way we should be thinking of love, you know, in that um, crazy way, as if you are possessed? Eric Fromm, the psychoanalyst Eric Fromm, he wrote um, in, in one of his essays that we tend to spend too much time and too much energy thinking about falling in love, but not necessarily about standing in love. For Fromm, love is not a passive thing. It's actually an active thing. Active in the sense that it requires us to nurture, to put thought into it, you know, to care about it. So in this framework, love is more about giving than about taking. It's more about caring than about receiving. And I find that important because sometimes we tend to overemphasize that possessive definition of love. We talk about my wife, my husband, my girlfriend, my fiancé, you know, my partner. There's a lot of emphasis on that first word, my. 
as if the other person belongs to us, as if the other person is our possession. But that cannot be. You know, wherever there's no freedom, there cannot be love. If there's no freedom, there's no love. If there's no equality, there's no love. I think love changes us. It transforms us. So we need to be ready to learn from love, to change, to be changed by love. For me, this was a very important uh, story and subject, especially in one of my earlier novels. It's called The 40 Rules of Love, in which I talked about different interpretations of love, whether it's more spiritual or mundane, Eastern or Western. Um, but then in the end, I tried to connect them all. And I tried to do that via the story of Shems of Tabriz and Rumi. And I think these are completely different personalities, wonderful personalities, who have taught so much to each other. The love between Shems and Rumi, it's a bit like the love between water and fire. They are very different, and yet they taught each other so much and they transformed each other. So I'm, I'm interested in that kind of love. But at the end of the day, what I want to say is we don't have enough words to understand the complexity of love because we're trying to lump together a broad range of experiences and just put them under one category, one umbrella term, love, and it's not enough. I mean, in Turkish, we have two different words, sevgi and aşk. Sevgi is more like, you know, the kind of love that you might feel for your fellow countrymen or countrywomen or for your family, for your friends. Maybe it's a calmer form of love. Aşk is a little bit more passionate, you know, like falling in love type of love. But even that is not enough. Two words is not enough. Think about it. Today, in our modern societies, we have more words to describe coffee than we have to describe love. We, we, we mention, you know, we say cappuccino, we say flat white, we say latte, we, we describe coffee in such detail. But when it comes to something as crucial, as fundamental and as universal as love, suddenly we don't have enough words. It might be helpful, actually, to look at the ancient Greeks. I love thinking about ancient Greek philosophy and society and, and, and writing as well. The ancient Greeks had at least six different words to describe love. For instance, they had philautia, which is basically uh, a kind of self-love. And philautia can have two different forms. It can be negative in the sense that it can be very narcissistic self-love, like an inflated ego. But at the same time, it can be a very positive thing if it is practiced as compassion. You know, you understand yourself, you show compassion to yourself. And the second meaning of philautia, I think, is beautiful. Then there was eros, which is more associated with desire, physical attraction and passion and sexual attraction. Usually eros is the, um, the way we use love in our societies, in our daily lives today. For the ancient Greeks, there was another term, philia, which is more like friendship, the bond between friends. It could also be brotherhood, maybe between people who went to war together. So the kind of bonding that happens on the battlefield, or maybe you've been on a journey together, a kind of odyssey. So that kind of solidarity, uh, camaraderie or friendship. Um, then there was ludus which is a bit more playful, flirtatious. You might say um, ludus is what is experienced in the early stages of an, of an affair. 
Then there was agape. Agape is very interesting. It's a more selfless type of love. You feel love and affection and compassion towards your fellow human beings. You know, not necessarily people you know or you're related via blood. You care about humanity. So there's empathy at the root of um, agape. And I find it interesting that the term agape is also connected with the Latin term caritas, which is at the root of charity. Again, it's about giving. And finally, there was the term pragma. Pragma is more like long-standing, long-lasting love. Sometimes it might be a long marriage or a long relationship in which maybe there's no desire or there's no huge passion, but there's an understanding, there's respect, there's affection, you know, there's mutual respect. So that for the Greeks was pragma. Six words is better than having just one word to understand the complexity of love. But to be honest, I think even six words is not enough. We need new words because when we have more words, we can think in, in a more nuanced way and we can understand the complexity of love in a more nuanced way. And I want to leave you with Rumi. He said, I think it's one of the most beautiful definitions of love ever uttered. He said, love is the bridge between you and everything else. So love is a bridge. Say